You are listening to March Mad Men, the podcast that means to answer the question, what is the greatest haunted house movie ever put to film? In our macabre imitation of the NCAA basketball tournament, we have paired 32 films in a series of grudge matches. Now we are down to the evil eight. Which film will reign supreme in this subgenre of horror? Well, tonight we're debating between a haunted lake and a haunted ocean. It's found footage, duking it out with a World War II movie. It's a bunch of creepy photographs versus a phonograph. You guessed it, our combatants are Lake Mungo and Below. Punches will be thrown, grainy images poured over, and bitter arguments decided by a simple vote. It's time to get it on. As always, I am regular schlub John Evans, and my co-hosts are produced horror screenwriter Vic Wheat and Emmy Award-winning TV producer, uh, nominated, sorry. <laughs> God damn it, you're cursing me, John. <laughs> hey, maybe that'll be prescient, Rich. <laughs> and Emmy Award-nominated TV producer Rich Eckersley. Rich, how the hell are you this evening, sir? I am excellent, John. I'm ready to batten down the hatches and put another shrimp on the Barbie. <laughs> Do it, that's right. Yes, uh, that was spot on. <laughs> bonus, uh, bonus points to you for the phonograph to a photograph line. That was uh, that was some quality writing. Well, thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. And speaking of quality writing, uh, Mr. Screenwriter Vic Wheat, buddy, what's up, man? I gotta say, John, I my first thought was when you were like. That's right. You guessed it. It's below versus Lake Mungo. I was like, nobody, <laughs> nobody guessed that. Literally, nobody guessed that. Based on based on my research into these into these movies, but I actually think that's going to give this podcast sort of a unique perspective. These are hidden gems. Like these are the kind of films that I hope this podcast is digging up and bringing to light for people that are really fans of of. Uh, the genre as a whole and this subgenre in particular. If you haven't seen either of these movies, there's a reason they're in the Great Eight. And uh, contrary to what John thinks, I'm not sure the outcome to this contest is decided. So let's let's dig into it, man. Let's jump in. Well, you're right. I mean, they they do have quite a bit in common. Uh, weirdly enough, as different as these two films are, and I think it will be fun to discuss. But, uh, yeah, the criteria for this uh, round, we have basically three. Um, and if you listened last time, you know what the categories are. But it's historical significance, food for thought, and rewatchability. And those are just kind of vague and general topics to kind of shift our discussion of these movies in a direction that's different from the previous rounds where we've talked about these movies already. So, hopefully, you're not going to get the same kind of statements made about these movies and we're going to look at them from a different perspective overall. That's at least the idea. With that in mind, let's let's get into it. And a couple of things I, I noticed right off the top looking at our previous shows about these movies and uh, it was, I think these were recordings on different nights of course, but I noticed that I invoked the Coen brothers with both of these movies in my discussion of their endings. So they have that in common. And I think the point that I was making was that these are movies that the ending at one point or another, um, well, okay, the famous thing about Coen Brothers for me 
is uh, their movies is that the first time I see the film, I don't love the ending. And then later I get it. Well, that was certainly the case with Below and with Lake Mungo. It was uh, the first time I saw the movie, I liked the ending. The second time I didn't. And then the third time I just kind of accepted it for what it is. And at this point, I accept the endings of both of these movies for what they are. That's just sort of a strange commonality. One more commonality to throw out. Uh, last time we recorded, we were talking about The Devil's Backbone and how the Weinstein brothers made uh, Guillermo del Toro's life a living hell on The Devil's Backbone. Well, tonight we're talking about a movie that the Weinsteins didn't give a fair shake in Below. You know, guys, if I didn't know better, I might start to wonder if the Weinsteins aren't the greatest guys in the world, you know? John, it's interesting that you say that because I believe I'm the one who brought up the story that uh, David Tui would refuse to change the ending for Bob Weinstein. And as a result, Weinstein sort of tanked the release for this. When I was doing research for this podcast, I read a lot of things where people were like, God, this movie's this movie's really good. It's really interesting. I, I, I don't understand why it didn't get more of a release and blah, blah, blah. I did not find a single piece of corroborating evidence to that story, and I don't even remember where I heard it. I just know that I was I was obsessed with Pitch Black. I was super excited for this, especially when I saw that Darren Aronofsky was involved, and then it kind of disappeared. And so somewhere when I was a Hollywood assistant, I heard that story, uh, and I have carried it with me all these years, assuming it to be true. But if it is, there is no evidence of it on the internet that I could find. Well, I don't know about that exact anecdote, but I mean, how buried this movie was is definitely on the public record. I happened to stumble across an Ain't It Cool News review from 2002, possibly by uh, Harry Knowles himself. I don't really remember some of the, the monikers that they used, but Head Geek was the, was the writer. In any event, the whole point of this was summed up in this paragraph. You know, Below is hitting screens in two weeks, and the only place I saw the trailer was on Ain't It Cool News' own servers until we were forced to pull it off. Of course, that was back in February, and after it left our servers, it was never seen again. Oh, and it had to be leaked to us. There's no one sheet. Seen a TV spot? You checked out their super cool website? What? You, you say you can't find the site? Yeah, well, check out DimensionFilms.com. Oh, wait, seemingly their server is down, too. What the hell? And this was like two weeks before the movie was hitting theaters. It's an extremely positive review, of course. So, yeah, the movie was released without advertising, without fanfare. And it came and went in October of 2002 uh, before anyone even had a chance to realize it existed. It made only $605,000 before ending its theatrical run. So, yeah, those guys, for whatever reason, Vic, I'm, I'm sure you're, you're close enough to the truth there. They absolutely dropped it down into Davy Jones's locker. I caught a pretty breezy interview with David Tui where he well, he, well, two two interesting things that came out. But one is that he his like public story was that Dimensions issue was that K nineteen the Widowmaker had come out a few weeks or a month before and had performed poorly, and so he was saying that Dimension just lost all hope in this possibility of a successful submarine film. And that that's why that was going on. Also, apparently the way that, that he got around that or tried to get around it anyways, was he just started creating his own website for the film. Um, so at the, the time of the interview that I had read, he was just doing his own promotion online 
with the explanation of, well, it worked pretty well for Pitch Black. Maybe it can work pretty well for this movie, which is pretty wild to say considering what a what a completely different budget this thing was operating on. At the same time, it was encouraging to see this guy like put on a, a happy face and just sort of like write off what seems like it was heavy Hollywood drama to like, oh, oh well, you know how these things go. Well, it's fascinating. Well, that was dramatic. That was fascinating and dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> While we wait for Victor return, I will say I clicked on uh, the link, and yes, Head Geek was Harry Knowles. So this publicity came straight from the top of Ain't It Cool News back in uh, 2002. So let's see if we can get Vic back. Does Ain't It Cool still exist? Not to my knowledge. I'm on a site called LegacyAin'tItCool.com. Going to college and, and, well, especially going to film school in Austin, the Harry Knowles was certainly like a regular who you'd run into at screenings. That guy would show up to almost anything. We always knew it would be. Oh, can you guys hear me? Yes. Yes. Hey, Vic, you know what's really interesting? Nothing. <laughs> nice one, Rich. Uh, hang on, I'm going to try this one more time. Hello? Yeah. Can yeah. you hear me? Uh, yeah, what's the deal with your microphone? That's really the question. Are you, are you phoning in from a helicopter? What? <laughs> God damn it. Vic, Vic, oh, Vic okay. you're Grace audible, okay. but your your mic is the issue. It's very hot. It's not your headphones. You're very hot. Yeah. How about, how about now? You're a, little, you're a little better, but you're still pretty loud. What is your mic situation? I it's it's exactly the same as it's been every other podcast. Maybe it's just because you're agitated that it sounded so hot. <laughs> Shut up, John. Jesus. Okay, so I seem to have worked out my technical issues. Uh, what I was going to say is that what's interesting is that that what what David Tui is saying there is actually really plausible. I've seen in multiple instances as a both as a writer and just being around the industry in all these years. That really is how Hollywood works. They really do think, oh, a submarine movie bombed. Well, I guess they're done with submarine movies. It reminds me of the conversation we had about The Woman in Black where the revitalized Hammer Films was really having a tough time getting getting things going. And when that movie succeeded, they decided that it was because it was British. It was a, a British story and a British cast, and they weren't going to do anything with Americans. And it's like, I'm just not sure you're taking the right lessons from this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the classic Hollywood thing. I mean, like, to just go to even a further extreme, it's like, well, there were a lot of blue walls in that movie, and it didn't do well. So this studio is never going to shoot any scenes with blue walls. I mean, yeah. it's, it's almost that absurd. Well, just goes to show, I mean, like, making movies is just... It, like it's just such a mystery like even after all this time like we're still trying to read tea leaves in terms of what it is it that draws people to actually pay to go see something in the theater i mean now more than ever but yeah like everyone is just looking for answers and, and much like the stock market you know or or gambling if or even like, you know, life secrets, if you're a cult leader, you know, if you were promised to be the person who actually knows how to interpret those two leaves correctly, then suddenly you're running the place. You're called a consultant, and that's the best job to have. <laughs> <laughs> well All right. Well, um, 
so many, so much interesting fodder for, for discussion here, but let's, let's kind of get it back uh, on track in terms of our, our show structure. And let's talk about the, the higher seed in our tournament first. And of course that's Lake Mungo, which is the number two seed in the whole fricking bracket. And, uh, yeah, we had a feeling this movie might go a long way. It certainly made it to the final eight. Let's discuss the historical significance of Lake Mungo. Uh, starting with you, Vic, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, kick us off here, man. My biggest thought about the historical significance of Lake Mungo is that it doesn't have any. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's almost devastating to see a film that is this, unique and original and I think very frightening. It's certainly a a divisive film on that front. I think that you're always going to find people who aren't frightened by it. The one that the, the larger picture that I took from it is if you look at this period specifically uh, starting, I'm, I'm reaching a little bit here, but, but go with me that in 2005, we had Wolf Creek come out. Uh, we had this movie in 2008, and we had The Loved Ones in 2009. Those are three really exceptional independent Australian horror films that seem like they should have launched huge careers for all of those people. They all underperformed at the box office. Greg McLean has certainly worked, but I don't think he's lived up to the potential or what people thought he was going to do when Wolf Creek was playing the festival circuit. Uh, and, and the other two directors are, are just almost never heard from again. It's very strange that we had this burst of really awesome independent horror in us coming out of Australia, almost comparable to, you know, what was what came out of Japan, for instance, or or, or Asia with Juwan and and Ringu and the Eye and all of those those sort of really amazing, interesting films that totally captivated American audiences and totally changed the direction that studios were going with horror for 10 years. And these movies didn't – none of that. They had none of that impact. I'm just sort of baffled as to why. I mean that's what I mean when I say that what's interesting about this film's historical significance is that it doesn't have any – I don't have any explanation for it. I don't know why those movies – and this I think is the best of the three. I don't know why they didn't have – that kind of impact. I don't know why they didn't affect the the world of horror the way that Rangu did. I don't know. Do you guys do you guys have any thoughts on that? Do you guys can do you guys have any explanation for that? I guess. Well, first of all, I I do want to say that while I think that the the connections made are always very good, it should definitely be a drinking game that every time Vic brings up Ringu or Asian horror in general, everyone has to take a shot. Let's add that. Add that to the the drinking game. Okay. Asian films in general, especially Ringu. Ringu's a double shot. Well, I'll go. No, no, no. I'm sorry. Juwan is a double shot. Yes. Juwan is a better movie than Ringu. That's the double shot. But you could – look, I would say you could go the other way and compare it to the, the, the French – uh, extreme horror that was coming out with Martyrs mm-hmm. and High Tension and that yeah. kind of thing. I'd, I'd certainly say that those are a little more comparable in terms of like their the the lack of a of a lasting impact off of them. I mean, obviously you have like Alexandra like Aha, who I believe is from that school. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, he's a high tension. Yes, so de- definitely still a very successful 
director. Um, but a point taken, I, I'm not sure I can explain it. I mean, look, I've, I've, I've had a much broader theory about uh, Australian media in general, which is that they just they just don't quite fit in. Like Australia is, is like a weird mix of, of Texas and England. Um, <laughs> yeah. Way, it, it feels like both like too foreign and not foreign enough for American audiences. Um, and so I feel like not too many things have taken off from, from there. The, the, I guess the big exception would, would definitely have to be like George Miller's, uh, Mad Max films are probably the most notable exception of, but, um, you know, Baz Luhrmann and like, there's a few others, but not like you can name a ton of, of Australian filmmakers, despite the fact that it's a very large country and has a decent amount of media output. So like, well, and, and ironically, like I would say, conservatively five out of 10 big starring male actors and at least three out of 10 female actors are Australian in, in, in the movies that we watch here. That's a good, that's a good point. The Hemsworths and yes. uh, Russell Crowe and Mel Gibson. Kate Blanchett yeah. and yeah. yeah, the list goes on and on. And I just want to say, don't forget Peter Weir on your list of Australian filmmakers. He's one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Picnic at Hanging Rock, for example. Um, anyways, yeah. So, okay, the the, the list goes, goes. The last on. wave. Come on, Rich. Vic, can can I really explain why it didn't have a lasting impact? No, I'm I'm astounded by the fact that this director hasn't worked again. Um, and I I did search around. I know we talked about it a little bit last time as to why or what he did after this, and it seems like he really just kind of disappeared without a trace. Maybe he drowned in a lake. Oh, <laughs> that's that's so cold. I love it. As cold as the icy waters of Lake Mungo itself. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll take it in this direction. I mean, I think I'm going to hit on some of these points, and you know, maybe we'll we'll tie it all in a bow when we get back to Rich here. But this movie does have personal historical historical significance to me, and I know I've mentioned this before, so I'm going to try to approach it from a different angle, but yeah, it's the movie I always wanted to make. After Blair Witch Project came out, my first thought was someone could do this, meaning Blair Witch, and edit the movie too? Like a scary mockumentary, because then you wouldn't be as shackled by the conceit of no edits and no music, no structure beyond what the cameras captured. You could have the voice and perspective of a filmmaker. And yes, Lake Mungo is the is the gold standard of doing that. It has the verisimilitude of found footage and the storytelling grace of a good documentary. And most found footage movies do not have that grace. So they did what I wanted to do. Nine years after Blair Witch and one year after Paranormal Activity. And I think that's close enough that they probably, they may not have been influencing one another in any way. So uh, this guy, Joel Anderson, I believe, yes, he has my, and everyone else on this film, they have my undying admiration for pulling that off. But my next point was going to be, yeah, beyond the personal significance here, I'm not really sure about any historical significance. This remains an undiscovered gem. I don't think there's a big contingent of Mungo heads or Lakeys or Mongolorians or whatever. <laughs> I'm not going to say that. Okay. Rich, what were you saying? 
No, I was, was going to go for mongoloids, but probably not. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, have stay, we have to stay away from that. We've already, this podcast has already gotten in trouble for that. Yeah. <laughs> so it's probably not a favorite subject of t-shirts at horror movie conventions. We don't click on shutter and go through thumbnails and groan. Oh, not another Lake Mongo imitator to reframe this. Should this movie and can it earn its place in history someday? I could see it, but this is such a small, subtle, and understated film that I'm just not sure it's the kind of thing that will ever inspire a cult following. I think its best hope for real historical significance is that some filmmaker who feels about this movie the way we do will make their own movie and say, this inspired me. Lake Mungo inspired me. And then people will go back and see that DNA in Lake Mungo, and they'll appreciate its place in the progression of the found footage subgenre. That's basically the scenario that I see for this movie to really achieve the historical significance that it deserves. And obviously, there's a lot of ifs and and whens and maybes associated with that, sadly. I think what it needs is a trio of passionate podcasters to put out into the universe uh, and a deep mm-hmm. exploration of its greatness in a way that, that horror fans will latch onto. We can be the cheerleaders for this movie to help it find the audience that it did not find over a decade ago. Jesus Christ. What, what if we were going to give this movie a, a loving autopsy, for example? Yes. <laughs> well, well, Vic, the thing that, I wanted to talk about a little bit and I, and I emphasize a little bit um, for the historical significance of this film is actually just that, that as I was trying to grasp an understanding of where this film fits into the larger canon of, of horror or Australian horror or, or anything, one of the things that stood out to me is that there are many reviews that you can read of this film that are not from when it was released. They're not from 2009 or 2008, even when it was on the festival circuit. They're from now. If you go to Rotten Tomatoes, the 18 of the 18 reviews they have, I believe four or five of them are from 2019 or 2020. And maybe part of it is part of the the global scraping of the internet that's happening right now in the midst of a pandemic where people are, are searching for things that are far beyond what's an easy grasp on their, on their streams. And so people are looking for underappreciated gems and that's what, just what people are reporting on this movie talking about it as, as an underappreciated gem, something that got missed when it came out and now is being given a chance to be reexamined because people have run through all the other options. So we really could be at that point. Like this is a pivotal moment for this movie or really any smart under the radar indie movie. If you're not out there beating the drum and trying to get people to watch your film during the global pandemic, like you're missing an opportunity. Wow, that's a brilliant observation, Rich, because, yeah, coming off of this huge lull in production – that has occurred. We're even only beginning to get to that point where stuff, there's just like nothing to watch except older stuff because there's this large, you know, 
stop in the pipeline. And, and I think that people for at least uh, another year, perhaps, are going to be delving deeper into the back catalog. And that could actually help a number of films and TV shows find a new audience that they might not otherwise have found. And wouldn't it be amazing if somehow COVID-19 like makes Lake Mungo happen? <laughs> I mean, that would be awesome. <laughs> it would be like, what a cool like twist of fate that would be. And, yeah. and furthermore, I, I'm going to, you know, go on record right off the bat as saying like, this is a movie that deserves it. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, that, that just as a, as a minor tangent, actually two things. First, I would say that the idea of scraping the internet is the, just the, the most disgusting thing I can think of. <laughs> it's a lot worse than bubble gum down there at the bottom. I can assure you of that. Okay. Well, let's move on to the next category. Are we done with historical significance? I believe oh, we are. I, actually, I, have oh, one other, mm-hmm. I have one other historical tidbit I want to throw out. Um, I came across this just tossed off in a variety article and I don't know what it means, but here you go for the information is that I, it was referred to like Lake Mungo is the, the, the place where, you know, a significant event happens in the film um, and that it's a very significant area. So I looked into it. Here's the, the write up that I read and I'll, I'll sort of jump through it. So Lake Mungo is a dry lake located in New South Wales. It's 760 kilometers west of Sydney. Um, it's been the host of many important archaeological findings made at the lake, most significantly the, the discovery of the remains of the, quote, Mungo Man, the oldest human remains found in Australia, and the Mungo Woman, the oldest human remains found in the world to be ritually cremated. Well, yeah, lots to digest about the lake itself and the movie and its place in history, but uh, perhaps we'll circle back for more later. It's time to move on to food for thought. And that is the category where we delve into how you know provocative the film is. Do you take it with you after you stop watching it? Are you continuing to wonder try to unravel its mysteries long after the final credits. That's the idea of this criteria. And uh, let's start with Vic. Do you, do you think about this movie, Vic, when you're in the shower or driving home or lying in bed staring at your ceiling? <laughs> I, do, I do think about this film. And one of the threads that I found when I was researching it for this particular podcast was that what what sets this film apart is the way that this is a film about grief. And this is about a family dealing with and grieving over the loss of, of a child. And I, it's not that that's an uncommon theme in horror, but it's more that it deals with it in just such a – what feels like such an honest way – the performances really are the the anchor of this film. I remember that being one of my initial reactions to watching it the first time. Is that the actors are phenomenal. They really sell it. The quote, and I got this from uh, uh, Bloody Disgusting, actually, that I, that I noted down was, where Lake Mungo transcends as a film about grief is in its multiple reveals throughout the film, all of them leading to the conclusion that this family's grief, which is felt so deeply throughout the film, is for someone they never truly knew. And in never knowing their teenage daughter, Alice, they are mourning for an idea of her 
rather than the woman herself. And I just thought that was a that was a perfect encapsulation of the emotional undercurrents that that drive the horror. That this is a movie without the horrific elements in the fact that it's about a family uncovering all these secrets about the daughter that they've lost. The brother has a line, which I also noted down because it's a great line, that Alice kept secrets about the fact that she kept secrets. That, to me, is what gives the film – it's what gives the film an emotional impact. And if it didn't have that emotional impact, you wouldn't feel the horror that you feel, especially in – the third act and, and some of those climactic moments. No, I mean, there's this movie really, it stays very close to reality and to the point where like there are times where, and I think we've talked about this on the last podcast where there's almost a question of, is this even a ghost story? And I think that that's a question that you can continue to ask after this movie's over. I, I feel like I certainly have. And I still enjoy mulling over the the questions in this. Watching it again, each time I see it, I feel like does raise new questions about how much of what you're seeing is is supernatural, how much of what you're seeing is a just a manifestation of of everything this family's going through, exactly as you're describing, Vic. I mean, one of the thoughts that I had was that yes, the secret double life that this girl led. And how coming from the family that she comes from and the life that she had, how she came to lead that life and keep those secrets, that is something that I do find mysterious and intriguing. It's not particularly germane to horror, but as Vic said, it does sort of help to inform both the sort of sadness and sorrow of their loss, the humanity and the sort of the mystery of losing someone and then knowing that you'll never fully understand that person because they're gone. I think there's something really interesting about that, but almost more just from a generally dramatic or literary perspective. Um, it doesn't really tie into the haunted house movie genre or horror in general, but it's definitely one of the things that kind of gets my imagination cooking in regards to this movie. I'm not ruling out that that couldn't add to the disturbingness of the film. Okay, let's put it that way. But other than that, I kind of struggle with this with this category and this movie in the sense that how much do I wonder what really happened here? Why did this girl have this ghastly precognition of her own demise? Is she at peace now? And does this mythology have any intriguing implications for ghosts and haunting in general? Those are the kinds of questions that this movie might get us thinking about, right? Is there something special about this flavor of ghosts that is exciting to hypothesize about for guys like us, for people like us, horror fans like us? I mean, horror definitely deals with seeing the future at times and wishing that you hadn't. I think that's a somewhat out-of-fashion tradition of the genre that this movie does tap into. It's a very old-school concept, but it's, there's something to it. So those are my first, like, reactions to the question of, does this movie give you a lot to chew on later? And, yeah, I think those are all 
you know, valid things to think about, but it's, it's definitely, it's not a movie that leaves all of these imponderables that you're just like really like a dog with a bone worrying it and hoping to maybe figure out the riddle. I think that it it really is a a parable of grief and, and of letting go both um, maybe on both sides of that transaction, both the, the dead and the living. And I think that's all very powerful, but I'm not sure that the movie is really leaving us, leaving us with a brain twister or something like that. You know, it's not, we talked about the shining last time, whether intentionally or not. Yeah. The, that movie just kind of opens so many doors of speculation and interpretation. I'm not totally convinced that this movie is playing that game. John, I think you make a really good point, And I, I want to throw out one other quote here that actually connects pretty closely to what you're talking about and gives you a, a jumping off point. And beforehand, I, we do have to give a shout out to Alexandra West over at Bloody Disgusting, who wrote that article that, that Vic mentioned, um, and who wrote that article, by the way, in 2018. Um, that's just a dissection of this film and an excellent one about that, so check it out. Um, the quote from that that I wanted to, to throw at you is this. The horror of Lake Mungo not only comes from the creeping dread, but from an oft-repeated horror trope that you can never truly know another person. We're not talking about an we're not talking about in a Jack Torrance kind of way, where a haunted hotel can make someone snap, but in the inverse, the idea that we will never know all the intimacies, hopes, and dreams of those closest to us. That is essentially saying the same exact thing you're saying in just a different way is how intriguing do you find those concepts? And I find the the fact that this movie is about discovery and about things left unsaid and about mysteries that are still left uncovered at the, at the end, while it's not a, a brain twister, so to speak, it does leave a strong, powerful and lingering feeling of space, of emotion, of suffering that lingers with you long after the the film is over. And while you may not necessarily be puzzling over it, it's certainly a feeling and thoughts that I return to often after this. Not to mention the fact that there is a question left at the end of what happens next. This is not a movie where the ghost is is satisfied or dispensed with at the end. It's not cast out of the house. The family moves on just like anyone who really suffers through grief. There's a period of time where they try to figure things out and there's a point where they have to move on. And the film leaves you with the ghost still in the house, watching everyone else go on with their lives. There's an entire life ahead for the creature in this movie that we're not even privy to. I mean, that's a lot to chew on for a ghost film. Well, two real quick responses to that before Vic chimes in. I I think that on the one hand, what you said there, Rich, really prompted me to consider the possibilities in my own life. And so I thought, like, what if my my own sister passed tragically way before her time? And suddenly, like, I learned all of these things, like this entire 
life that she had that I had no understanding of or comprehension of, let alone, you know, even basic awareness I didn't have, that would, that would throw me for such a loop. And the idea that I could never really talk to her about it and never find out, you know, A, why she kept it from me and B, because, you know, we have that a very close relationship. So it would just be so disorienting and tragic. And I think that that's kind of what we both were alluding to is that if someone dies, you never, you can never really hash out secrets with them. They will always be unknowable or at least undiscussable. And then the other thing was that the ending, I don't find it as ambiguous as, as you do in that regard. I mean, I think if we get the opportunity to delve into the movie again, maybe we can parse it. But I, I thought the grammar of the film in terms of what we see, I thought the feeling was clearly that everybody was at peace and that the ghost was sort of um, letting them go in some way. Like that was, that's kind of how it plays for me. I'll throw it to Vic. Vic, like what does your interpretation of the ending jibe with either what Rich said or what I said or something completely different? There's a couple things. So my interpretation of the ending definitely leans more towards Rich's. I feel like there's some ambiguity towards that. And I do want to leave the specifics of that to a more in-depth discussion of the film. John, I do also just want to tell you uh, right out that your sister has been involved in a sexual relationship with me and my wife for the last (laughs) five or ten years. There may be some videos floating around on the internet. It's a, you can check, I just check that mystery off. I, I don't. I don't want you to find out about this after she dies tragically. So, <laughs> and, and John, if you look at any photos of your sister, don't focus on your sister. Look in the background, yeah. and you'll see Vic hiding. <laughs> I will see his bearded face lurking in the background. <laughs> oh God! Uh, I do hope. Or listens to the podcast. Seriously, yeah. thank you, Vic, for that. Um, <laughs> I, I, I went through a, a gamut of emotions as you said that, and I guess to your credit, I wasn't as as upset as as many people could have been. So, props to you. <laughs> I, th- I think that speaks volumes about uh, my wife Emily. Really. Um, but uh, the other thing to me that that impacts this film, and I, I feel like we discussed this earlier when we talked about the film is that what triggers her double life, like the time at which she starts to see the psychic and begins this affair with the the married couple that she's been babysitting for is when, uh, once she sees that video and once she's confronted with this image of her own sort of ghostly dead self, that that is what sends her onto this path, this spiral of things that she's hiding from her family. And I find that to be an extraordinarily powerful metaphor. So I do want to ask, not, not yet, but I do want to ask you guys if, if you guys agree with that in terms of a timeline for her character. But again, in, a, in a, just in a more general sense for what the film is saying about not knowing someone and everything else, I do think that part of being a teenager and part of what makes it so hard is that it is a time when 
you begin to know people who died and you begin to understand your own mortality and your place in the world and, and how sort of infinitesimal and unimportant it is. And that does send a lot of teenagers on spirals into self-destructive behavior. So th there was a, there was a sense in which this felt like a horrific metaphor for what happens to lots of teenagers and, and, really spoke to me and some of what I went through as a kid when, when, you know, as a, as a teenager preteen, when I started to know some people who had died and started to go, Oh fuck, like what a scary fucking world this is. I'm going to take some drugs. <laughs> well, you're sort of saying it's an exaggeration of something that is real and universal. And I'd say that it's, it's, this is a, this is a person who was confronted with her own mortality. Yeah, but in, in a, a much more literal way than any of in us. A, in a very direct way, exactly. But that it, that informs the behavior and the secrecy, but that that feels like a transition to adulthood. That when you talk about it as maybe we can never know another person, yeah, that's because every person at some point has to confront the their place in the universe and the the you know their finite existence and the fact that they're going to die someday maybe not as directly as this but that that confrontation usually leads people to do some shit that they don't tell other people about and so we all develop this other life this inner life this this part of ourselves that we just don't share with everyone that feels like a really fascinating universal perspective to put on this movie in a way that makes it that makes it connect and makes you go oh maybe this movie is really special well i want to throw it to rich here but i mean i'm very curious to revisit uh, this because i i wasn't cognizant of the fact that the whole videos and the affair with the neighbors was definitively after lake mungo i, I don't remember that demarcation being clearly drawn and I think it would completely change the whole context of it if we found out that like yes she was totally quote-unquote normal everything that the family thought she was no surprises no secrets and then this experience happened and her reaction to it is well fuck I'm gonna go have threesomes so I mean honestly like that could be completely what the filmmakers intended but that was not my uh, interpretation after three viewings. But uh, it, it, I think that would change everything if, if we can definitively prove that. I'm with you there, John. That is not that's not the interpretation I had. But that is also not to say that it's not true. I remember right. the timeline always being a little muddy in terms of what happened when. Sadly, what I, what I will say is, if we watch it now and it turns out that's not the timeline, it does sound like a better timeline. I can't say that that's definitively the timeline in the film, but really we get the two stark revelations we get about revelations we get about her are number one that she that she went to see the the psychic, and so we have the dual revelation number one that he's been lying to them, but then also that she had been keeping it from from her family, and also this sexual affair that she was having with the the family she was babysitting for. And so it's possible that I'm just interpreting that because obviously she didn't go to the psychic until after that happened. That was one secret she was keeping, that the other secret would have happened around the same time. 
but I could be wrong. That's how I interpreted it, and and now I just because I didn't rewatch it again for this podcast specifically, I'll have to rewatch it and see if sure. there's if there's any more clues specific to that. But that's always been my interpretation. It, it might not be definitive one way or the other. I mean, I'm pretty sure it's not definitive that you're wrong because um, we would we would know that. So it could be, yeah. I do think the chronology of the film has always felt like a little bit of a, a weak spot from a storytelling point of view. It's not something that, that felt like it was in, an intentional uh, repression and, and release of information. Like it just felt like something that wasn't very clearly communicated. So uh, yeah, I don't know. If we go back, it'll be interesting to parse that out. Fuck this movie and its shitty timeline. I'm voting for below. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on to rewatchability. So, uh, Vic, what's your what, what are your thoughts on the rewatchability of Lake Mungo? This is tough for me because I have rewatched Below many, many, many more times than I have rewatched this. But, in fact, I only rewatched this after the first time for the purposes of this podcast. But I have now seen it twice for the podcast and once having seen it originally. And I remember saying when we did the, the most recent podcast prior to this on, on Lake Mungo, it made the hairs on my arm stand up. Like, it scared the shit out of me. It holds up to multiple viewings. It doesn't call out to me in the way that something like The Shining or Below or or other films, you know, The Fog actually is another one that I revisit frequently. But those movies feel almost more like comfort movies. Like, they're movies that I put on when it's late and I'm tired and I want to zone out on something that I find entertaining. So the fact that this isn't a movie that I would choose to do that with really speaks to the fact that it is an effective dissection of grief and a family suffering uh, as they, as they try to come to terms with this terrible tragedy. That's not a movie that I'm going to inherently knee jerk, want to go back and watch over and over again. But now that I've done it, I can tell you that it does not get weaker. It does not diminish on multiple viewings. As a discussion category, I feel like you sort of have to determine, well, look, yes, I watched Jaws a hundred times. Jaws is really fun. I haven't watched The Deer Hunter a hundred times. It's no fun. Does that mean that Jaws is a better movie than The Deer Hunter? Yes, it was a bad example. But... (laughs) I think you, you sort of get what I'm saying when I use that as a, as an illustration. Well, yeah, don't forget one of the criteria of rewatchability is not just you, but like sort of do you want to be an ambassador for the film and introduce it to other people? Absolutely. And 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 I do. Uh, part of part of what I've done for this podcast is join a bunch of online horror groups to try and uh, get get the the word out about what we're doing here and I've found myself getting really involved in those communities because by God, there's a lot of really smart, passionate people and a couple of douchebags, but mostly really smart, (laughs) passionate people. And when people say, Hey, I'm looking for a scary movie to watch tonight and I have Amazon prime. What should I watch? I do not hesitate to type Lake Mungo into that list because a, they probably haven't seen it. And B, this is awesome. It's a great recommend because you're 
almost guaranteed that the, whoever you're talking to has not watched this movie. So <laughs> it, it, it goes great in that category. I recommend it to several people. I will say for the record that I don't think anyone that I've recommended to has ever come back and said that they enjoyed it. Um, like they always seem a little disappointed and they're like, oh, I thought you said it was a horror movie. So, you know, and most of those people are, again, for, forgive cribbing the phrase, but they're, but they're normies. Well, I, I interpret that too as rich and, and, and let me like see if we can determine exactly who, who you're saying that to, because I would sure. think that quote unquote normies might actually like this movie, but my issue in terms of its sort of place or rewatchability or appeal to the average horror fan is that it's, it's just not that visceral. Like it's not, it's not a blood and guts horror movie. So tell me, like, do you think those people wanted something that would like, they'd be like, yeah, rich, that was really fucked up, man. Or are they, yeah, I think it's quite the opposite. Whenever I've recommended this film to people, it's because they are people who don't watch horror movies very much. And they're like, well, what's, what's a good one? And they've, they've seen some of the, the obvious entries. They've seen The Conjuring or, or something like that. Yeah. I'm like, well, if you like want something that's like different, like makes you think in a different way, like there's a movie that's like it's very clever and it tells a story in a really unexpected way. And and it's not about what you think it is. And I've pitched it that way. And also just stylistically, despite the fact that it's, you know, arguably like found footage, um, it feels like a very fresh stylistic approach. So I've, I've pitched it that way. To people who aren't into horror, the people who are into horror tend to respond really well to this movie. Mm. Um, I mean, you guys are probably the most this is probably the most passionate conversation I've ever had about it. I, I could be repeating myself from the first time that we talked about this movie, but it's also worth mentioning that this was I, I'm going to go on a limb and say the first movie that Vic ever recommended to me um, when the two of us started hanging out, and I remember going back and, and watching it lay at night one night by myself. And that was the moment that, uh, I was like, I was like, ah, this, this ugly motherfucker's got some taste. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm glad I didn't know what was hanging on that recommendation. Rich. <laughs> he would not well, be talking to you today if Lake Mungo <laughs> had been a dog. But for real, I mean, I think that's a testament to, you know, that, that was like, I mean, isn't that the perfect like movie exchange for someone who you're like, sort of like trying yeah. to like age, like what similarity in, in taste you have is like, it's like, sure. It's, it's a very special, it's a very, the special is the wrong word, but it's a very niche sort of, uh, film. And the fact that like, it, it is a horror movie, but it's borderline. It's not shocking. It's right. That's why people who aren't familiar with horror, when they see it and they think horror movie, they're like, well, that's not a horror movie. Um, you know, there weren't monsters in it. I think people who have seen the gamut of, of everything there is out there see this, realize that, that it's something special. Yeah, I mean, there's no traditional suspense sequences and nerve-jangling music and bloody, breathless women crawling through air shafts with some hulking killer stabbing yeah. A sharp implement um, up through. I think against any of those things. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, we everyone knows we love that stuff, but but this movie is not like a traditionally experiential film. It's a thoughtful psychological horror film. It's a horror film for people that 
have seen enough of that other kind of stuff and they appreciate it, but, but they want to be sort of unsettled on a weirdly deeper level. So that's, that's definitely what this movie offers and it's not for everyone. There's no doubt about it. And it's not for every mood, you know, like I've said, I've not been entirely praising this movie as it's worked its way through our tournament. I definitely have things that I'll just say that kind of, leave me cold or it's, it's just not, it's not that this movie is not the quintessence of what I look for in a horror movie. It is not, it does not deliver all of the goods that I want in a horror movie, but it, it's so good at those sort of rarely attempted things that it's uniqueness and it's impact. And it's like the effect of a cold wind in a graveyard where you're not really, Nothing's hitting you in the face. There's no skeletal hand choking you out, but you're just kind of, kind of creeped out. That's that's sort of what this movie does. Also, it's 65 minutes, which is not to be overlooked. <laughs> yeah. um, it, it increases its watchability. Like I feel like when you look at like Mungo, and you're like, wasn't that kind of slow? And you're like, yeah, but it's only 65 minutes long. Like I feel Good like Lord. I'm I'm willing to I'm willing to go in and experience that again. If it was a two and a half hour slog. Um, yeah. you know, it'd be a different story. So I think it, it uses the medium to its advantage. Is that, is that short? I wasn't even consciously aware of that. I, I, I wasn't I'll, either. I'll, I'll fact check that right now, but I believe that is actually true. Well, while you do that, here's my little blurb on this. Um, the last time that we saw this movie, I thought I wasn't sure I was excited to see it again. And that's, that's not great. I think I would need to get high to really find another level of analysis with this movie. It didn't really necessarily feel the last time we saw this or talked about it that more viewing would automatically yield new and or deeper insights. But that said, not enough people have seen this movie, and I would enjoy introducing it to those who love the genre but have, up to this point, overlooked this frequently forgotten film. If we're talking about rewatchability, I think that that's a significant thing. I'd like to see how this movie plays for someone the first time. I have confidence showing it to someone that it will hold up and not become dated. However, as I said earlier when we are talking about historical significance, it could be that someone stands on the shoulders of this giant and advances the dialogue. I am definitely convinced that there is a scarier, more disturbing and more visceral version of Lake Mungo out there in the great subconscious that we, we might, someone might be able to nail everything that this movie does well, but also up the ante in the horror department. So if that were to happen, people might down the road see this movie as the tame antecedent to that landmark film, and its charms might actually be overshadowed by its lack of visceral chills. So that is both an endorsement of the movie's potential long-term and also sort of a, a way that it could just kind of end up being a curiosity piece down the road. So I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat ambivalent on rewatchability. This just popped into my head. How much would you love to see Werner Herzog remake Lake Mungo? Oh God, yes! Like, oh wouldn't God, that be a, wouldn't that be amazing? Yes, I mean, like to see like the 
the weird character flourishes of the people that are interviewed, it would yeah. be, yeah. I mean, like, the Grizzly Man version of Lake Mungo would be fucking amazing. Except Herzog would have to play the psychic himself. <laughs> yes, he would. Yeah. My fear is that it would be more like, uh, what was it, uh, Incident at Loch Ness? Oh, God, <laughs> I love that movie so much. That is, that's maybe the closest parallel to this movie. But yet, like, I mean, it's a completely different genre. It's, complete, it's completely different. Yeah. But in terms of the mockumentary style being applied to a horror film in a way that is, like you said, John, you know, edited with a filmmaker and a voice that feels like, you know, they're, they're, they're telling a real story, unlike sort of a, a standard found footage film. I don't know. That's I feel. Like, I feel like that's actually an interesting. That would be, that would be an interesting double feature. If you were to tell me, I'm going to give you some of your fantasy films. Like put this filmmaker and this idea together. What would it be? Um, you get three. Like I think I might say that Werner Herzog doing a Lake Mungo remake would be in that top three. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I love what I love. Like just the 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 possibilities of what you're suggesting because he, he is definitely one of my favorite documentary filmmakers with a really dark edge. I don't think that would be the the most commercial approach, but it it might be my favorite approach to a remake of this movie. Any other thoughts on Lake Mungo? I, here's my thought. I'm, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page. The runtime is 89 minutes. Yeah, I, I saw that. Sorry. I was, I was mistaken. Well, uh, Rich, what a wonderful endorsement of the pacing of this film. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We could, we'll see. We, could, we could edit that out, Rich, but no. We're going we're gonna to leave this in. Everybody's going to know that you thought this was 65 minutes. And, I mean. It really, it really is an endorsement of the pacing when you take in, like, I, I challenge you to find a review that does not use the phrase slow burn in describing this movie. <laughs> I will not. I will not accept that challenge. <laughs> Hello, March Mad Men listeners. We're going to end this episode right here. Tune in next time for our assessment of David Twoey's Below and find out which film wins. Adios. autopsy was performed on the Monday, the 27th. Then the coroner released the body on the Tuesday, the 29th. It was very strange spending Christmas Day with the family up there while Alice lay alone in the morgue. I don't know, it was just like I hadn't seen her for a week or anything, like, yeah, it didn't feel real. Death takes everything eventually. It's the meanest, dumbest machine there is, and it just keeps coming, and it doesn't care. There's nothing else to know about it, really.